45, we are going to have a very short message tonight. Uh, didn't realize what time it was, but that's okay. <clears throat> There's a lot here to cover. And so you'll, you'll kind of remember Genesis chapter 45, where we were. Uh, for the past couple chapters, Joseph has been putting his brothers through this prolonged test to try to discover if true change has taken place. Are they the same people that sold me into slavery, that were going to kill me, or have they changed? Has God done a work in their lives? And he's trying to prove that through all these various tests that he's doing. And you'll remember that he basically set them up, he, he planted evidence on them, and then he sent his, his servant to go and get them. They come back, and then you remember there's this awesome scene where Judah is willing to sacrifice himself. He's willing to substitute himself because Joseph says, Benjamin is going to stay here. Everybody else can go free, but Benjamin, he has to stay, and everybody else, you can go. And Judah says, it's not going to work that way. He, he, Judah says, you don't understand. Either I'm staying or, or no one's staying. But Benjamin is not staying. Benjamin can't stay. And so Judah's willing to pay for the crimes of another and sacrifice and substitute his own life so that those who are actually innocent in the situation can, can go free, even though they've been accused of a crime. They are guilty in the eyes of Joseph, but they are actually the ones who didn't commit the crime. And so you end up in Genesis 45, and in the first couple of verses, this is what we read. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Imagine the shock, right? Like, they thought Joseph was, was dead. I mean, they sold him into slavery, but they just assumed he's gone forever. We're never going to see him again. And then here he is. Joseph finally reveals himself after all this time. If you're one of the brothers, I mean, what are you even feeling in this moment, right? Like, shock, disbelief. You're probably not believing him, but you're like, he knows the name, so something's going on here. This is astounding. And he says, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Obviously, I would be too. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And that's where we're going to end these verses for now because there's so much to unpack here, even in just those. Actually, I just want to focus on one phrase. Can you guess what it is? One phrase out of the whole section. Anybody know? Basically, yeah. God sent me before you. Or basically, God sent me. I want to focus on that because that's very important, is it not? I mean, this is, this is a, we've been talking about realizations a lot recently, right? With all the brothers coming to these realizations, Joseph starting to realize. This is the biggest realization they have. You would think it was the realization that this guy that they thought was just some random Egyptian was actually their long lost brother, Joseph. But there's an even greater realization taking place here. Because in this moment, and probably a little bit before then, 
Joseph has realized something, and he's letting his brothers realize something, and it's the fact that, hey, you thought that you were the ones doing this? You sent me to Egypt? Here's what I have to tell you. It's actually God. When did Joseph realize that? Do you think he realized that when he was in the pit? Do you think he realized that while he was in prison or in Potiphar's house? No. When do you think he realized it? I think so. When the brothers first came to Egypt, I think God brought about a huge realization to Joseph where he's like, okay, you think you're funny, don't you? (laughs) I thought I was rid of these guys forever, and yet here they are. God must be up to something. And he starts piecing it together. And he realizes that everything that he's gone through in life, that the pit had a purpose, the prison had a purpose, Potiphar's house, that even had a purpose. It was all to bring him to Egypt and put him in a place of authority so that when his brothers came, they would be provided for. It took a lot of years to realize this though, right? A lot of years. 20 plus years, in fact. 20 plus years of wondering, why, God? Why is this my life? You ever have that moment where you reflect on like where you are in life and you think back to high school, you, and you're like, oh my goodness, I never thought I would be here. In this. this is not how I thought my life was going to go at all. And yet, this is where God's brought you. And it's amazing when you start looking back at all those times when you thought back in those moments, why God? Why have you done this? Why are you doing this? This is the worst thing that any high school relationship ends. Why, God? This is the end of the world. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then years later, looking back, you realize, oh, wait. There's a purpose to it. God was doing something. That was necessary. I needed that pain. I needed that trial. I needed that humbling situation. You don't realize that in the moment, but years later, after walking with God, and getting to experience His grace and His mercy and His patience with you and His kindness, you look back and you go, I get it now. I can see. And I think that's one of the big things that we're supposed to learn here is that perspective comes with perseverance. Perspective comes with perseverance because this is something that Joseph would not have realized in the pit. It's not something he would have realized in Potiphar's house. It's not something that he probably would have realized while he was still in prison. He had to keep persevering. He had to keep trusting God. He had to keep following God. He had to keep praying. He had to keep going where God was telling him to go, opening or walking through those doors that God was opening. He had to persevere. And after all those years of perseverance, 20 plus years, he finally looks back and he sees his brothers and he says, it all makes sense. I get it. I get it. God needed me to be here in Egypt, in this place of authority, God sent me before you. It's a very theological statement, is it not? It's saying that none of it was by accident, that none of it just happened, that none of it was outside the control of God, that all of it was God's good purposes coming to pass. And that's hard to realize, hard to believe, it's hard to wrestle with sometimes, but you get a lot of that in this chapter because You know, like I'm saying, you get this perspective 
with the perseverance, it's, it's only after these events take place that you can realize that God was up to something. I mean, I remember reading a story about a woman who, who was working her dream job in her dream place, and then she was fired. And she thought, this is the end of the world. This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. This was my dream job in the dream location. It couldn't get better than this. God, what are you doing? And so the next day, September 11th, 2001, she couldn't go to her job at the Twin Towers because she had been fired the previous day. And so while she was at home wondering why God would leave her in this situation, put her in a situation where she lost her dream job, she looks at the news and sees what's happened. She realized it was God's mercy in her life. That what she thought was an absolute tragedy, the worst thing to ever happen to her, was actually God's greatest gift to her. There's probably a person or two in here who could, who could testify to that, right? I know I can. I look back at the darkest time in my life, and at the time I thought this was the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to me. This is like the wrath of God. This is the worst possible thing that could happen. And then years looking back, I say it was the mercy of God. God broke me physically, spiritually, emotionally, and then he saved me. And so I needed that time, just as Joseph needed the pit and Potiphar's house and prison. And God, by his grace, has given him this perspective through his perseverance. But there's something else I want to focus on, right? Man, there's so many good things here. So, so he says, God sent me, and we just focused on the God aspect of that, right? That, that God was the one behind the scenes. God was the one doing this. But I want to focus on that, that last word there, God sent me. God sent me. So, so this is what I want you to notice here. This is God orchestrating it, but he's sending Joseph specifically, meaning that this was not an impersonal act, right? This wasn't an impersonal act. God specifically picked a particular person for a particular task that he needed done. Because just think about these things, right? Egypt was about to experience a time of abundance, and then a time of what? Famine. And they needed someone with wisdom and someone with the Spirit of God in them who could lead them during that time. Who could say, here's what we need to do during the time of abundance. Here's how we make it through the famine. If only they could find such a person. God was giving dreams to the people to keep people in leadership in Egypt. But here's the problem. You remember what the problem was? No one could interpret the dreams. All the wise men in Egypt, all the, the, the divines and people who could see, these, they couldn't interpret the dreams. And yet key people were getting these dreams. They needed someone who could interpret dreams. If only they could find someone like that. But not only that, think about the fact that God's covenant people, the ones who were of the line of Abraham, were about to experience a terrible widespread famine. And I don't know if you know the relationship between Egypt and the rest of the world at the time. Not great. So Egypt would take care of itself during that time, but there would have been many in Egypt who would have died. What would have happened if some people from the promised land would have come to Egypt looking for food? You think they would have gotten it? Oh no, they would have been turned away. Egypt takes care of Egypt. And so God's covenant people needed someone who would have access to food, who would be able to preserve their lives during such a terrible famine. If only they could find someone. And so what does God do? He's going to take someone, there's going to be many needs, and God's going to have a man, he's going to send to meet all those needs. 
Someone who has wisdom in whom is the Spirit of God, who's going to be able to lead them during that time of abundance and famine. Someone who's going to be able to interpret the dreams of all the key people in leadership that's actually going to end up with him in leadership and someone who's going to be able to advocate for foreigners when they come to the land of Egypt. And so what did God do? God sent me. It wasn't you. God sent me to be the one to be there. Now, that wasn't an easy road, right? It involved a lot of hardship, and yet this is where God was putting Joseph. And, and, and I just think, you know, one way to say it is that God purposefully places his people. I think that's something we all need to remember. God purposefully places his people. That's what he did with Joseph. Joseph is here. I need him here. Here's the path to get here. But think about this in your own life too, right? How easy is it? I mean, I used to do this all the time at Lowe's. I'd be complaining at Lowe's. If only I could be in ministry. And then a guy come up to me and say, hey, you know, why do you believe in God? I'm like, hey, no, not now. If only I could be in ministry. If only I could do great things for God. Hey, do you know, can you tell me about God? Why do you believe? Not now. I'm, I'm bitter. If only I could do something for God. Just overlooking, right? And it took Anna to tell me one day, do you not realize God's given you a ministry? Right here at Lowe's, right where you are. You need to be pouring into these people. So that's what I did. It was a huge perspective change. That applies to all of us as well. You think about your sphere of influence, whether you're at school, whether you're at work, whether you're retired and you're just out around town with your grandkids or anywhere else. You have a sphere of influence and God sent you to that place because they needed a Christian who knew the gospel the true gospel, who believed the Bible, who lives for the glory of Jesus. And so wherever you are, wherever you're working, whoever's around you, that's not an accident. God sent you to be his ambassador, to take his gospel to these people. And God works in amazing ways like this. I mean, I'll just tell you very quickly, <clears throat> Joseph knows this, and I think maybe one or two others, but but a, a few Fridays ago, I think it was two Fridays ago, I went to visit Mildred Merle. She had come home. This was before we knew that she was going to go back to hospice, but she had come home lucid. It was amazing. I mean, I could not even believe it. But I go there, and I'm loving on her, talking with her, and, and we're just catching up. I'm there for 10 minutes. Two Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. And Lee went to answer the door, and she didn't know what to do with them. She was just going to turn them away. But then she was like, oh, wait, the pastor's here. <laughs> and so she's like, hey, Alex, you might want to come talk to these girls. I spent over an hour talking with them, sharing the gospel with them, opening the Bible, telling them, you know, looking in the scriptures with them, showing them that Jesus is God, pleading with them, calling them to repentance. I mean, they were laughing at me at certain points. They were mocking me. But I, you can ask Lee, this is true. Throughout the conversation, I was slowly working my way where my back was to the stairs so that they were at the door and I was blocking their exit so they couldn't leave. And Lee's like, did you mean to do that? I'm like, yes, I did. So, <laughs> but you worked your way around them. And I called, I said, you can laugh at me, you can do whatever you want, but I don't want you to leave here until you know the true gospel. And I called in repentance. I said, I am scared that you are believing in a Jesus who cannot save you. And I don't want that to be the case. They don't believe in hell, so you know, there's no big deal for them. But 
but the whole point of that is this. If Mildred Merle had never recovered enough to be sent home from hospice, she would have never been there on that day. And if she had never been there on that day, I would have never gone to the house on that day to visit her on that day. And if I had never gone to the house on that day to visit her at that day, at that time, I had been delayed. I was supposed to go there an hour earlier. I kept getting delayed at work. If I had not been delayed, I wouldn't have been there at that time when two Jehovah's Witnesses who needed to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ came knocking. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's my whole point. That's what we're seeing here. That's what I want you to understand about your life. That you're not here by accident. You're not at your job by accident. You're not in your family or your friend circle by accident. God put you there. I had no doubt. I left Mildred's house that day saying, God sent me. God sent me to that house at that time because he needed someone to be able to share the gospel with those two young ladies. That's how God works. We can't ever forget that he's the one behind the scenes. All right, very quickly, let me just say this, okay? Last thing. God sent me before you is what Joseph is saying here. And now, I want you to think about real quick, what does that imply? God sent me before you. What's the implication? That they're coming, right? God sent me before you. Not, God sent me, it's a good thing I'm here. God sent me before you, meaning way back before the world was even formed. It was always the plan of God to have the family of Jacob be in Egypt at that time. And he needed someone there before you. He sent Joseph. That's amazing when you think about that, right? Because it was always the plan and purpose of God to move that family to Egypt. And how we think about this situation and what the Bible is saying here tells us a lot about what we think about God and his sovereignty. Does it not? Because I want you to think about it like this. There, there are some who would look at this situation and they would say, well, the brothers did something bad, but, but God found a way to bring some good out of it. The brothers, they did a horrible thing, but praise God, he found a way to bring some good out of it. Is that what the Bible is actually teaching here? Yeah. So some people would say, brothers did a horrible thing. They committed a terrible thing. And, and basically, they're saying, you know, God did the best with what he had. He brought some good out of it. Praise God that even though they messed up, they did this terrible thing, he found a way to bring some good out of it, make the most of it. Is that what the Bible's teaching here? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we were. Yeah, that's right. So, I want you to understand here God did not try to make the most good come from the sinful act of wicked men. God did not try to make the most good come from the sinful act of wicked men. He wasn't taken off guard, it didn't come as a surprise to him. They didn't do this thing, and then he goes, Okay, okay, scramble time. Here's what we do. Now, plan B. Here's what we got to do. We got to adapt. We got to move forward. This is the plan. That is not what happened. God used the sinful act of wicked men to bring about the most good. There's a key difference there. Do you understand what's happening? In one of them, God is sovereign. In the other one, God just does the best he can with the materials he has. 
And there's a whole, whole theology there. There's a theology called open theism that basically says God doesn't know the future. God can't control it. He has no idea what's coming. But God is infinitely wise and smart, and so he can adapt to every situation. They, they've used the illustration, God is like the best chess player ever. And though someone might make a move that surprises him, he always knows the right move to make after. What a weak God. I would never serve a God like that. A God that does not know the future. How do you pray to such a God? Lord, could you help me? Nope. <laughs> I don't even know what's coming. What a weak God. That is not the God of the Bible. God did not bring the most good from a situation that had fallen apart. God used the sinful act of wicked men to bring about the most good possible. That's what the Bible teaches here. It was all part of bringing about His purposes. You saw that there in verse 5. Notice it says that God sent me before you to do what, church? To preserve life. And then you see again in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. Now, this is actually kind of hard. Oh, I really want to get it. We'll, we'll just, we'll flirt with it for a second, but we don't have time, so don't get all excited. Okay, so verse 7 is actually very, very important, and you can see why, okay? So everybody have their Bible. I want you to notice some key differences. So everybody look down, verse 7, at your Bible. So this is what the ESV says. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. Now, KJV will say, uh, by great acts of deliverance. Does anybody else have anything different? Any, any other crucial differences there? All right, there's something very beautiful actually going on here. You don't need to know a lot of this. Uh, and he sent me, God, this is before you, to preserve, obviously, for you. Now, this is key, this first word, remnant. Does anybody have anything different than a remnant in your Bible? Translation? No? Okay, so make note of this word. It's very interesting. This word for remnant here is referring to a specific remnant of like uh, leftover, something that's left behind. It's the remainder of something that was there. That's key, okay? So a remnant on earth and to save lives for you. Now, this is what it should be here. We should have this little bracket, shall be or are to be. So, so this is how it should read. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save lives for you are to be, or you shall be, a great remnant. As you can see here, a remnant, a great one. The reason that this is in brackets is because it's not in the Hebrew, but that is often the case with these type of verbs in Hebrew. You have to supply them. Great example, Ruth 1.16. What does Ruth say to Naomi? Anybody remember? Yes. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Will be is not in the Hebrew at all. You have to supply it in English. It's just assumed in the Hebrew. You have the same type of situation here. And so it's saying that the people are going to be a remnant, a great one. So Joseph goes before them to preserve life for them, right? To preserve a remnant on earth, the people of Egypt. And then he's going to save lives for they are to be a remnant, a great one. And here's what's interesting about this word, remnant. It's different, as you can tell. Obviously, I know you all know Hebrew at this point. so You can tell it's different. This one, remember, mark down, the first remnant means leftovers, something that's left behind, something that's remaining. This one specifically refers to a group 
of survivors who have escaped something. It's a remnant that has escaped. It, it always refers to something that has escaped. So that's why you, you have the KJV will say, by great acts of deliverance, it's just a, a difference with like, it, it should be those who have been delivered would, would be, it's what they're kind of going for. But it's a remnant that has escaped. And so here's the crucial question very quickly. There are three groups here, okay? I want you to think about this very specifically. Joseph has been sent by God to Egypt to preserve life, and he's actually preserving the life of three groups. What are the three groups? You see them in this verse when you actually break it down like this, and you might need to take a picture and study at the house. So the, the, two, two groups should be obvious. He, his brothers, okay, that's one. And Egyptians, right? So here we go. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Those are the Egyptians. The, the people in the land of Egypt, not going to be everybody. Some people will still die. But there is going to be a remnant there. Interesting, it's for them, a remnant for them. We'll get to that in a second. And then the brothers, because they are to be a great remnant. So this implies a third group that Joseph is preserving. Who's the third group? Yes, the future generations. Okay, the remnant is for them, for you, a remnant here in Egypt, because you are going to be a great remnant, meaning you're going to need to mix with some people and have babies. And you remember Exodus chapter 1? <sighs> I mean, they blew up, right? They just expanded like crazy. And so this is a great act of God here, and we need to understand what is happening that this is not an accident. This is God sending Joseph to the land of Egypt, not just for his brothers and not just for the Egyptians, but for the covenant people of God. God has big plans. God is always doing 10,000 more things than we even think or know. Here's what I want you to understand. There are no accidents with God. It was not an accident that Joseph went out with a coat of many colors. It was not an accident that his brothers were angry with him. It was not an accident that they betrayed him. It was not an accident that they sold him into slavery. It was not an accident that he goes to Potiphar's house. It was not an accident that Potiphar's wife lied about him. It was not an accident that he's in prison with two of Pharaoh's servants. It was not an accident that he remained there for two years. It was not an accident that Pharaoh exalted him in Egypt. It was not an accident that his brothers came back to Egypt. It was the plan and purpose of God from before He even established the earth. This is how our God works. Is that not amazing? There are no accidents with God. He is sovereign over everything. That's a God I can trust. That's a God I can worship. That's a God I can give my life to, knowing that everything in my life falls under the umbrella of His sovereignty. That He is taking care of it all that nothing catches him off guard. Are you not thankful that nothing catches God off guard? He's not taken by surprise. He's not like, oh, no, what do I do now? God says in his infinite wisdom, I knew it was coming. I've got a plan. I will bring about my purposes. He's always working to accomplish his will and his purposes. And yes, that often means that he uses difficulty in the sinful acts of wicked men to bring about his purposes. And the greatest of those was Jesus, was it not? Think about that. Because the Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross was according to the foreknowledge of God. 
God had it planned from the beginning. Jesus was always going to live and die on the cross for sins. And you know why that took place? Because wicked men put Jesus to death. And through the sinful acts of wicked men, God brought about the best good he possibly could. The salvation of his people, a faithful remnant. This story points us to a greater person than Joseph. Where we see more clearly the plans and purposes of God where we see the greatest sinful act ever taken place bring about the greatest good we could ever imagine. Salvation in Christ. The salvation of a faithful remnant. Michael Stevenson, word of wisdom. We would be the fourth group, that's right. That's a good point. He was preserving. Well, I guess it falls under the category of the third, the future generations. But, but yeah, I do like to think of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like to think of it like that. I like it. Yeah. All right, well, how about you close us in prayer then?